Welcome to the RSP Film and Data. I'm Matt Waldman. Joining me is FSWA Writer, Fantasy Writer of the Year, Adam Harstead. Congratulations, Adam. Thank you. Thank you. Technically, I was Fantasy Writer of last year. I'm not Fantasy Writer of this year. That still remains to be determined. So, Well, you're the reigning Fantasy Writer until they get another one. How about that? That's true. Yeah. That's true. I was... um. I was telling my seven-year-old son yesterday, I said, hey, I won an award today. And he said, oh, yeah, what award? And I said, uh, best fantasy writer. Uh, and he's like, come on, be serious. What award? <laughs> I said, y you don't think I'm a good fantasy writer? He said, you're, you're a good fantasy writer, but the best, please be serious. <laughs> well, it's definitely a chip off the old block. I would definitely, if you know Adam on our message board at Football Guys, or if you knew him on our message board at Football Guys, or in the leagues that we play in, you would know that that Adam's son is definitely Adam's son, you know, with that remark. So I'm, you know, I we're gonna have to bring him on just to, you know, bring him on just to be the troll. I think in this in this instance, you know, I think that would be. He does get it from awesome. me because when my kids are like, you know, you're the best dad. I'm like, can you really say that? Have you really observed every other dad? Like, what are the odds that I'm really the best one? Like, I'm a good dad. <laughs> they may, maybe hey, i'm top 10 let's go with top 10 dad because i just i just i haven't seen every other dad i can't say that confidently at least in the at least in a certain square block of chicago huh you know there we go so uh but which which is pretty good you know so i'll you know i think we go from there but uh but seriously you know that's a it's a it's a great honor and it's a nice thing for, you know when you check you should check out adam's work if you're tuning in this podcast you've heard you know oral versions of a lot of the articles that you've um you know that he's put out there and i'm sure that this has probably helped some of some of you to head over there and check out adam's work if you weren't familiar with adam already and if and i know many of you already were and very happy that he's a part of this podcast as we as we definitely are so um today we're going to talk a little bit about um, free agent running backs and kind of continue a conversation that um, I had last year with Brandon Angelo. We're going to take it from a different angle. Brandon Angelo and I do the Going Deep podcast on the RSP channel. Um, and as you, and if you're not aware of Brandon, he does fantastic work. You can find him on X at Angelo underscore FF. And Brandon is a former 100-meter, um, 200-meter sprinter in the Big Ten at Purdue, was a running back at Purdue. Um, he likes to joke that he was famous for... He and a bunch of other freshmen in, in a top freshman meet in the Big Ten getting their asses whooped by Tyreek Hill and having no idea that it was coming because um, they were all laughing at this little kid who showed up at the at the meet and thought they were going to whoop him and he put the spanking of their life, um, you know, in that in that moment. So Brandon works now with athletes on you know on their development on their especially like performance related things like sprinting um, he is very familiar with the device used at the nfl combine and one of the first podcasts we did he told a story uh, essentially about why measuring the 40 is the wild west for the nfl at this point right now um, when it comes to prospects and you know first you look at this and you have to understand that you know, every surface has a little bit of a difference. 
Um, and so if you're looking at the combine or you're looking at pro days, that can all be very different just from the surface. You know, as he explained, Ohio State's insistent on the fact that all their track, all their athletes on pro days run the 40 on a track surface that's notoriously a fast surface um, at Ohio State. Whereas USC a couple of years ago let Travis Dye run a 40 in practically a monsoon outdoors, I believe, on grass. Um, and and Dye was known as a fast athlete, but didn't turn in a great time. And the NFL, talking to some scouts and analytics people I know in the league, have said that there's a fudge factor for sure by scouts that they know certain services are faster or slower and they give a certain kind of fudge factor of time ranges based on those on those but that's kind of weird in the first place because how scientific is that um and then the the kind of the more concerning thing from my standpoint and i think should be for you know from a a modeling or analytical standpoint is that at the combine they use what's called they have a brand of measurement called the zybeck and y'all you may hear rich eisen talk about the zybeck says i think he's probably done that from time to time on tv over the years zybeck is an elect partially electronic timed system so what happens is that it has an electronic start and then a hand time finish and there are five ways of measuring the worst and the least reliable right now is hand timed you know that's the you can joke that that's the wizened scout who thinks that they've really gotten this thing down um and they're a master at the hand time you know hand finished you know st hand start hand finished thing but as brandon would say he said that's like high school track meet where i won the meet but i don't know whether i ran a 10 7 or an 11-2, but my mom's happy that I won, and that's all that really matters. Um, then you have the you know the partial electronic time that I just described. That's the combine. That's probably the second least accurate of the five. The third is the RFID um, GPS type of timing, where you have chips implanted, and they're kind of tracking that information start to finish, um, which is frequency timing. Um, and then you have what the Olympics and track meets use, which are single laser and dual laser timing. And so when I asked Brandon about this, I'm like, why wouldn't they use the top one? And, you know, he kind of shrugged his shoulders and wondered the same thing. But the, the best estimation was, you know, it's not that they're expensive for the NFL. They run 1500 to $2,000, but they're difficult there's a learning curve in terms of how to use them um and how to make sure they're calibrated right and and so he was like imagine having some of the nfl types from what we hear who are actually going to get wizened on this thing or having them lug it around from school to school and get this all set up and ready to go so that there's a consistent scoring or measurement with this you know at different schools or even asking schools to buy them because yeah georgia could probably afford 20 of them and um and still have money left over and fort valley state would probably be like that's not remotely in our budget you, you know we don't even have a great weight room maybe compared to lsu um so now nah, nah, that's a non-starter so it the, the problem with this 
is that according to Brandon with the partially electronic time 100 meters there's a standard deviation for for the outcome of 0.24 to 0.3 seconds which means if a guy runs a 445 it's very possible he's actually running a 4.69 and we know that if that's a wide receiver that's the difference between being a first round wide receiver and maybe being a third day at best wide receiver and it's the reason why a lot of these guys won't run i mean he described quentin johnston adam as a good example of a guy where who his agent saved his behind in terms of millions of dollars because he's a four five athlete probably all day long um at least from his estimation of how he runs he said but as a three-point stance starter in the 40 He's a long limbed guy who's probably going to have a slow start and run slower. And then you have that deviation on top of it. Um, and some guys are better three point stance runners and, than two point stance guys. And some of it has to do with limb length and training. Um, and he said, so for, for agents understand that they're going to make a lot of, uh, they're going to make or lose a lot of money based on, on this event. And on top of that, you know, if it's true, I guess my question for you is, you know, with all that laid out is where do you, do you see this as problematic? Do you see this more as well? Every, everybody who's anybody is probably running at the combine anyway. So does it really matter? Cause we know who's fast and who's slow based on that. Or is it more just about you know, your view of the 40 time is just being an approximation anyway and just a small layer? Or is it something where you look at and and I would say maybe ask, is there a point where um, you look at this deviation and, you know, do you, I guess I would say, do you, I mean, is, is it problem? You know, I mean, I just wonder if it's problematic for analytics because I would look at it and I see people saying that for instance running back 40 times are very important um and it's very and and it has some stickiness to some success and i would say well if i don't know whether a guy's running a 445 or a 469 how how important can it be how accurate can be and are we like and i wonder if agents this whole thing is a circus and kind of a game where we're where basically, you know, agents don't want to do this because, or don't want to have this revisited because now we look back at historical times and did Bo Jackson really want to four, run a 4.19 or Chris Johnson really run a 4.2? I mean, we know they're some of the fastest players ever, but it, are those times ever real? And can do we have any historical comparison? And do agents worry or teams worry that like guys are going to lose money because we look back and say, well, five years ago, this guy had a 4-3, and now everything's turned upside down in a complete mess. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Like, the pool of money is fixed. So if, if one class of players is losing money, the other players have to be gaining it as a result because there's the salary floor. Uh, yeah, I think of um, the inaccuracy in 40 times, and I'm not really thinking of 
Jackson or Chris Johnson, which absolutely they caught some positive variants there. But I think of like all the the urban legends, like Larry Fitzgerald ran a four point six three forty. Like no, he didn't. It, that he might have been timed on that one on one run, but like watch Larry Fitzgerald play, and he's not a four point six three receiver. Jerry Rice was not a four point seven one receiver, regardless of what like one forty time said. Um, and and yeah, I, I think there's definitely examples of guys who like their time is not really reflective of their play on the field. Um, in terms of how much of a problem this is, um, so when you're talking about like the validity of a measurement, um, that seems like it would be kind of a straightforward topic to discuss, but there's really four types of measurement validity. Um, and the first is gonna be construct validity, which is what we're talking about here. How well does this thing measure the thing that it says it's measuring? So construct validity of the 40-yard time is how accurately does this measure how quickly a guy can run the 40-yard dash? Um, and I agree the construct validity on um, the 40 times are probably pretty low. Is this a problem? Um, that kind of gets into the other kinds of validity, which I'll get to. but. Um, I believe, I've never been to the Combine, but I believe that everybody runs twice, right? They do. I believe okay. they do. And then if you add in pro days and everything, if you have a random error, um, that's there's two types of errors. There's random and there's system, uh, systemic, systematic. Um, systematic error is like, it's going to be biased and it's it's going to tend to be biased in the same direction every time. And those can be a big problem. But if you have a random error, the solution is just run more trials. So if you have a 4.45 guy and he runs a 4.69 one time, well, that was obviously if he runs again, he's likely to run significantly faster. Um, at the extreme end, if you ran a million trials, the guy would average 4.45 across all trials because all of those errors would offset. The more trials you run, the smaller the standard deviation becomes. So for an analytics department, something like a high standard deviation, that's not gonna be a huge problem because they're going to be able to account for the factors like it's a monsoon, the track is bad. Um, they're going to be able to use multiple measures to kind of try to wash the random errors out in the process. Um, and there's a lot of ways to account for. I saw a really interesting analysis of um, Bob Hayes 100-yard uh, dash, 100-meter dash versus Usain Bolt's. Uh, and they're like, you know, obviously Usain's was faster from a timing standpoint, but like Bob Hayes was running on a cinder track. And like, if you adjust for all of this, like actually Bob Hayes was faster than Usain Bolt. Like not even like for his error, but if you put Bob Hayes' run in Usain Bolt's context, it would have been faster. Um, and so there's a lot of track and field has been working really hard on these adjustments for a long time and a smart analytics department could could definitely account for that well on so that's a non, a non analytics yeah, no standpoint i'll just say that uh that jesse owens 100 meter dash in the 1936 olympics was the fastest run ever and it will always be it might be i'm not i'm not as deep into the um the track and field yeah. stuff um i recently i'm just saying was... from, folk, from a folklore standpoint not actually a, a scientific standpoint but you know it will remain somebody the was fastest recently, in my mind you know somebody was recently asking like if you took peyton manning prime peyton manning and transported him back in time to the 1920 would he be like an elite athlete for football <laughs> at the time um like as things have things changed that much and first of all no because yeah. in football at the time everybody played both ways it'd be like putting peyton manning on a soccer field 
Like he's he's purpose built for playing in a very specific context. There's no way he would get destroyed in the context of 1920s football. Yeah. Um, but then also, I kind of got down the rabbit hole of like, how athletic was Jim Thorpe really? Like, would Peyton yeah. Manning like, and and how was he relative to his peers? And it's it's a fun rabbit Peyton hole to go Manning, down. Peyton Manning probably would have wound up like Babe Ruth. He would have probably drank more than Babe Ruth and caroused more than Babe Ruth and. So he probably would have been the same Peyton Manning, to be honest. Um, except the rules, the rules probably wouldn't have aided him as well. So you know, either they would have aided him very much because he would have figured out how to to bend them within the scope of you know legality, or there they wouldn't have the football wasn't as Byzantine in structure and it wouldn't have um, benefited how he played as a player. Um, but uh, but yeah, he would have he would have continued drinking and still looked like a look like you know basically a dad bod type of guy you know pretty much whether he was in the 20s or in the 90s and 2000s there's only so much of that you can do though when you've also got to like once your once your time is on offense is done you got to go out and rush the passer yeah uh yeah yeah um that and lard versus olive oil that's all i gotta say you know i think peyton <laughs> would have hit that lard pretty hard so yeah, from a construct validity standpoint, I, yeah. I don't disagree that like there's a lot of questions about how the NFL is doing the 40. and yeah. um, But the three other types of validity, there is face validity, which is like, if you look at it, how well does this stat seem to be doing its job? Um, and if you look at the leaderboard of fastest NFL players and the leaderboard of, it, it, you know, the fastest 40 times, and you're like, oh yeah, it's Tyreek Hill, Chris Johnson, Bo Jackson, these guys right. are fast, right? <laughs> right? That's not a surprise. It seems right. like it's doing a pretty good job. Obviously, from a fine grain standpoint, we don't know how accurate it is, but it, like the leaderboard it produces seems to be pretty good. Um, there is um, criterion validity, which is um, a very interesting one. That's how well does it measure like the concept that it's trying to measure, which is different than construct validity. Construct validity is how well does this measure how fast you can run 40 yards? Um, criterion validity is how fast are you, right? And 40-yard dash as a proxy for, like, speed. <laughs> right. That's a much, much harder question because there's so many elements of speed. And, and um, you know, like, somebody might be really slow over the 40 but have incredible burst and be really fast over the 10. Or you have, like, the lateral agility and various other measures of speed. Um, and Curvy so linear speed, you know. Right. Yeah. The 40 sucks, but it's not meant to be a holistic all-in-one measure of speed that's why they run the other drills and by combining all of those things together i think you get some pretty solid criterion validity that that yeah. the nfl drills taken as a guest all toll um do can provide you with a fairly reasonable proxy of speed um and then the last one um, oh, sorry, that was content validity. Content validity is how well does it measure like the overall concept that it's going for. And then criterion validity would be like, it's it's like construct validity, but predictably. Like how well does this predict the thing that you care about? Um, and so someone like Dwayne McFarlane, that's mostly what he's going to be concerned with um, is like, if I know the 40 yard dash time of NFL players, will that enable me to make better predictions about who's going to be good and who's not going to be good? And and it's pretty well established on that front that, that these combine drills, as much as they're maligned, um, do have pretty strong criterion validity. Not necessarily if you, if you adjust for draft position, but that's just because you're double counting. Like they're already baked into draft position. Um, and it's important to remember that the combine started 
in the 60s. It was started by the Cowboys because they wanted to do analytics and, and they had no standardized measures. And they're like, how can we do analytics to find athleticism unless we standardize and we can compare everybody on a level playing field? Um, so the use of the combine as a tool for getting standardized measures to make predictions, it's 60 years old at this point, and it's fairly well established. Uh, so I, I think the NFL could and should do better um, just in terms of construct validity that if, if they're going to say that this is a measure of how fast somebody runs 40 yards, they should try to make it the best measure of that thing that they can. But even acknowledging its weaknesses on that front, um, I think it's still a very valid measure in terms of the other three um, forms of validity that we care about. Yeah, and I think that that's I think that's a very you know, a very good and clear explanation of of the issue, um, and I appreciate that. I would say that the only comment I would have probably that might criticize the NFL from from the standpoint of saying um, that you know content validity and criterion validity is that we unfortunately have the very the variable of GM of executives in the NFL who may not have this level of understanding or rely on people who have this level of understanding and as a result of that and I would say definitely coaches are among that group as well so you end up with situations where again the the I think there is some double scoring that happens just from the biases of well, he we made him an early round pick. He part of the reason why we made him an early round pick was his performance at the combine, and our perceptions of what we saw, and therefore the player that we picked that we signed to a free agent deal, we're not giving as many reps. We're not giving that chance. We we don't see you know, we don't see. We're not going to really take that look. So players who may actually be faster get judged as not you know and that ends up diminishing their resume for opportunities for actual opportunities to compete you know to actually compete for playing time and i think that that's where it probably hurts is i would say it hurts everybody from the fifth round on um you know if i were you know which is not the biggest well it is the biggest portion it is the biggest portion of players um so i think that it could help change some things if there if that was the case and i think that you know you're right it's probably tends towards and part of the validity you're talking about where it tend with construct validity that it tends to vary in the same direction um in terms of like the the by the um the errors or the standard deviation um, Brandon has mentioned that there are also cases where players have run have actually run faster than what they than what it looks but it's they're more the exceptions approve the rule I think than it is the other way around but no I mean I appreciate that that's a good that's a great um, explanation of everything that kind of clears things up in a manner where you look at it and say yeah it's problematic but it's not like a hidden crazy thing yeah and so my favorite bit of analytics writing, it was an article on baseball, which I don't really follow, follow baseball, um, but it was um, stop thinking like a GM, start thinking like a player. And it points out that the majority of analytics is 
written as if it's from the perspective of the front office, the general manager. Um, and so someone like a baseball player will go on a, a cold streak, like a hitting slump. And, um, you know, like the announcers on TV will be like, oh, yeah, his hands are drifting too far. Um, and that's why he's on this cold slump or whatever. And, and the analytics people will kind of poo-poo that. And they'll be like, no, random streaks happen. Like you're, you're being fooled by randomness. Um, and from like a front office perspective, that's kind of the correct um, frame that, that random things happen and they tend to be self-correcting. But from a player's perspective, that's not useful. Like if a guy's going through a slump, if he's on a cold streak saying like, oh, it's fine. It'll work itself out in the end. That's not going to help the player. Like from a player's perspective, hey, your hands are drifting up on the bat when you're going for a swing. Like that's really useful information. And he'll be like, oh yeah, that's correct. And I'm going to adjust my grip and all of a sudden the cold streak's over. So from a GM's perspective, cold streaks are self-correcting. But from a player's perspective, they're not self-correcting. They, they, they're, they appear to be self-correcting because players work hard at their craft to correct it. Um, and I think that this is kind of one of those distinctions where like from a GM or front office's perspective, the fact that there's so much um, construct error in the 40 times like that doesn't really matter. That's going to come out in the wash. It doesn't really make a difference. From a player's perspective, it can be everything. This yeah. can, for an individual player, this can add or subtract millions of dollars from your lifetime earnings. Uh, and so, yeah, I don't want to be too mm. blithe about that. Oh, yeah. it's not a problem that the forty time is not accurate because, as a value judgment, I think and, that you know the money should go to the players who deserve it. And as a scout's perspective, it is problematic because you're trying to determine how fast they are. And I understand right. that you know. I understand that you know over the whole that you might say well it's somewhat reliable but then i mean i look at these all the time and there's players that that i've looked at and said well he's fast he's he's certainly fast in this setting but there are plenty of settings on the football field where i would say he plays a lot slower and a lot of that has to do with maybe the mental conceptual understanding of the game and things like that but it can also be you know how they bend and turn and and different angles of speed and and certainly ras scores do a good job of compiling that where you take as you mentioned taking a variety of the times and putting them together to have a singular score that kind of distills it in a manner where you can say this gives you an idea about that player but at the same time you're at good scouting is about picking where the player wins and where he loses and where he can get better and where maybe he's not ever going to get much better and where the barrier of entry is for each of these things you know and i think that sometimes we you see so many instances of people loving certain players who just they're never quite worth what they're billed to be i would argue that tevin coleman was never as valuable of a player as he was paid to be throughout his career. Um, and maybe some of that had to do with injury, but a lot of it had to do with understanding of how to run a football within certain settings. And some of it had to do with how he played the game in a matter that certain areas of his speed were fast, but not in a way that they could ever apply it to max optimize his skills. You know, whereas Arian Foster is a good example of a slower back who you look at and say, well, slower, he's the minimum ride to ride to ride. He was plenty fast enough to be a starter in the NFL. Um, but you also understood that 
you know, his quickness, his quick ability, his ability to make quick decisions, um, you know, certainly mattered a lot too. So, and I love that your explanation too, again, of just, you know, people who are slow starters, fast finishers or the opposite, you know, those are important things as well. So yeah, with that in mind, let's talk a little bit about running backs and, and we'll end the show on that note is, you know, we've got Austin Eckler going to test the free agent market. Josh Jacobs, Tony Pollard, possibly Derek Henry, not going to receive the free, you know, the franchise tag. No surprise there. Now, those are some pretty good names in recent years, but we know that running backs drop off quickly um, in a lot of cases. Any of those guys from a fantasy perspective, if you're if you're a, a dynasty club where let's say you're not you're not rebuilding um, and you're either thinking you're maybe close to contending or you know you're a strong contender. Are any of those guys appealing to you? Um, and, and Or are you waiting specifically for landing spot for that? I mean, however you want to comment, and it could be that, or you know a certain landing spot, you'll be super um, excited about any of these guys. Yeah, so a number of years ago, um, I did some research on on player aging. Um, and like the dominant framework to view how players age is an age curve. Um, you know, you come into the NFL at a certain skill level, you ramp up and get better and better and better over time, you reach your peak, and then you decline, you decline, you decline, and then you're out of the NFL. It looks kind of like a bell curve. Uh, and if you average production for all players across all ages, indeed, that's what you find. You find a bell curve where, like at running back, I think it's 26 is the peak. Um, you come in at 21, 22, you ramp up, you peak at 26, you decline, you know, by 30, 31, 32, you're basically done. Um, but my contention is that this curve is an artifact of something called the ecological fallacy, which says something that's true of a group as a whole is not necessarily true of the individual members of that group. And if you actually look at careers, um, they, they're very, very, very rarely curve-shaped. Um, I used fantasy value as a proxy for talent which you know getting back into construct validity and all of that like i know it's not the best proxy but as long as it's correlated all of that should come out in the wash uh and so i looked at for instance i looked at fantasy production over a player's final two years um final two fantasy relevant years and um if careers were curve shaped you would expect that most of the time players would be worse in their last year, their last relevant year, than they were in their second to last relevant year because they're trending down and then they're done. Um, but that's not what I found at wide receiver. At wide receiver, 50% of receivers were actually better in their last relevant year than they were in their second to last relevant year, which is what you expect if basically careers were where like you just randomly fluctuated and then one day overnight, basically you were done. Like, and that's that's kind of the framework I use for player aging is there's this age cliff looming. And at some point in time, an NFL player is going to hit that cliff and they're just not going to be a viable NFL player anymore. Um, and we don't really know when it's going to come and we don't really know what's going to cause it. But if you look at player careers, this is the model that kind of predicts what's going to happen a lot better than the age curve model, especially at wide receiver. Now at running back, um, it was similar, but not nearly as strong. I think um, about 40, 33 to 40% of running backs were better in their last year than they were in their second to last year, which um, again, if, if 
curves were the rule, that should be 0% or close to it. Like it should be a fluke outlier for you to improve in your last year before falling off the age cliff. Um, but if it was, if, the, if there was no decline, then we'd expect closer to 50%. So there is some evidence that running backs do tend to decline in effectiveness before they wash out. Um, and I have some hypotheses about why that might show up at running back rather than receiver. Um, I think running back is much more of like production at running back is much more a function of role, whereas production at receiver is much more a function of talent. So it's possible that, you know, you have a running back whose talent has dipped below the threshold, but they still have a valuable role. So they're still producing um, and that would show up as a decline. Um, but the general takeaway is um, I do tend to be wary of running backs, especially running backs who have shown some evidence of decline in the past year. That to me is a red flag that shouldn't be ignored. But the other big takeaway is like 30% of running backs, 40% of running backs were better in their last relevant year before they fell off a cliff. So a lot of times that decline is still just random noise. Somebody like Josh Jacobs, you know, he had a down year last year. I think that I would be wary that he's on the downward trend, but I would not be convinced that he's on the yeah. downward trend. And are you trend. talking decline from a statistical standpoint? Yes. More? Yes, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is um, fantasy value, which right. is um, fantasy points per game minus some calculated replacement fantasy points per game um, times games played. So it's, first of all, it's per game, so I'm not penalizing guys who played a partial season as long as they were as effective as usual in that half season. I mean, they get penalized a little bit because they're, you're multiplying by games played, but somebody who's like dominant over eight games will still show up quite high. Um, so it's, it's, and it's, it's purely production and it's specifically production over a certain baseline. So somebody like Andre Johnson, like his year with Tennessee, like technically he's still in the league, but by my system, it's saying like, this is, he's no longer like this dominant Andre Johnson self. He's, he, over the cliff now he's not if you were paying hoping to get andre johnson you did not get that whereas like right. deandre hopkins with the titans uh, like he would still show up as like he's still viable, viable NFL player, right yeah. he's still producing he's still good to go um so i would expect hopkins to just continue fluctuating up and down until he reaches the point where like andre johnson i don't know if he loses a step that he couldn't afford to lose or something pushes him out of like viable high-end producer status uh, so I would be wary of, um, and I think pretty much every free agent running back who's hitting the market right now is doing so off of a down year. Um, I would I would be wary of investing a lot in that type of profile, but I, I would love to get that type of profile like at a deep discount because everybody, if, if you're using an age curve model, you assume that like there's no way they're going to improve. When in reality, like maybe out of three of those guys, are going to bounce completely back to their pre-career levels. Um, I was, you know, I was kind of out on Tony Pollard heading into last season because they were putting him in a role where he'd never demonstrated he could succeed in that role. Um, but I find myself kind of buying back into Tony Pollard because now everybody assumes that he's just completely washed. But like we know he was very productive in a specific role. And if he goes somewhere where he can do that again, I, especially I think he was playing through injury last year, it would not surprise me in the slightest bit if we got... 2022 Tony Pollard as opposed to 2023 Tony Pollard next year. Um, so I like all of those guys. I'm not as concerned with landing spots. Um, I'm a little bit because running back is so dependent on usage and role. But I think for any of those guys, 
it would maybe I'd say there's a one in three chance that we get the 2022 version of them. And the 2022 version of those guys was all just extraordinarily valuable. Yeah. And I would say that I, you know, if I'm oftentimes I'm not looking at production from that standpoint. So if I'm looking at a potential for production decline from a skills level on the field standpoint, outside of the numbers, Derek Henry and Josh Jacobs would be the two guys I would be most interested in. Um, if they're going to get the role that I anticipate that they will get. Um, Tony Pollard is Tony Pollard. I believe from an age standpoint, certainly suits my desire to, to have him, but I would say role and whether he really bounces back from injury fully and plays the, to pre injury level, Tony Pollard is there. The, the data makes it look like, um, towards the end of the year last year that he was coming on. So that may be encouraging as well. I um, actually, I dug into that um, and he gave an interview, I think at the Super Bowl, maybe with Matt Harmon, where he said like he didn't feel right until I think it was the Carolina game. Yeah. And so I'm like, okay, well let's, let's take Pollard at his word and let's compare his production up to the Carolina game with his production after the Carolina game. And it was like, exactly the same there was there was no change whatsoever so i'm he's hard because i think he he least demonstrated the ability to be like that high value workload before last year but also potentially he has the best excuse for the decline last year um i i tend to be with you where like i'm a big josh jacobs fan i think the things that he does are casual fans um but very highly valued by franchises um, so if I were to take a bet on any of them, it would be Jacobs. Um, second would probably be Eckler, just because um, receiving is so disproportionately valuable that even if he's not 2022 Austin he's Eckler, safe. yeah, right, he doesn't need to be to be valuable both from an NFL standpoint and from a fantasy football standpoint. Um, Derrick Henry probably has the highest upside of all of them, just because peak Derrick Henry is a Hall of Fame level running back in a way that. I don't think Jacobs or Eckler have been, um, but he would be the one I'd be most worried about um, the downside on, just because he's the oldest. And and research suggests that I don't I don't even know what the mechanism is, but the older you are, the more likely it is that like you have passed that threshold, sure. um, and you're just not the player you were. Yeah, and I think that that's I think there's it's a good conservative argument with Henry. That's a safe one that makes total sense. Um, my only contention in favor of Henry would be that we knew from the beginning of the year that Tajay Spears was going to be used a fair bit and that the design, when you look at the design of the team, what was happening here is that Rand Carthon and the ownership basically were going to move on from Mike Rabel and they were going to give it one more year and give the, they gave, they gave him DeAndre Hopkins they, they kept Tannehill and they hoped that maybe they could add another weapon with Tajay Spears so if Burks matured they would have a contender and that with Tajay Spears taking up a good bit of the load they would feel like they'd have fresh legs from Derrick Henry in the playoffs where they could play their style of football and, and really control things and beat up wary teams 
And I, that didn't work out for a lot of reasons. A lot of the players I mentioned are why. But you could see that Tajay Spears worked out. And the reason that that worked out from the get-go was how many times do you see an, a, a, a former defensive player with Pro Bowl or maybe long career turn into a coach and start a running back and use a running back as a pass protector in his first game as a rookie in the Superdome, which is probably the loudest ear-splitting place I have ever seen a football game. It was painful to go to the Superdome, to be honest with you. And that was not me like now. That was me at 29 who probably didn't give a fuck about my ears at that point. Um, and so when you look at the fact that he was the primary pass protector pretty much from the get-go and used that extensively and splitting time with Henry, I don't think that had to do with Henry in terms of a decline as much as it is them, them wanting to save him and they had a capable player. So I, I, if I'm, while it is a little riskier for the reasons you mentioned, I would, if he goes to a team like the Ravens, I'm very happy. That would be, I'd be very willing to take a chance on Derrick Henry in that capacity. Yeah, and I was actually just looking up um, some of the stats on Derrick Henry. The impression I had was that his role was lower, um, which, you know, probably a good thing because I think his role previously was just too big. Um, you know, he's playing at a 2003, 2004, 2005 level workload. And the reason we don't see those anymore is it's just not good for the player's availability. Um, but the impression I got was that, like, his per-touch efficiency um, was down. And, and again, I could go into a huge rant on how, like, the construct validity of how we're measuring those things. But, <laughs> you know, if we take for a second that they are what they are and we compare year over year, you know, a, a downward trend would be bad given the tendency of running backs to decline a little bit at the end of their careers and, and that a decline can be a herald at the end of the career. But, yeah, I was just looking at NFL next-gen stats, rush yards over expected. Um, which again, I could go into a long rant about that's, that's like an entire episode in and of itself. Uh, but actually, yeah, my impression was totally wrong. Derrick Henry's um, rush yards over expected per attempt is basically flat 2021, 2022, and 2023. Virtually no difference. Uh, so the evidence uh, does tend to support the position that Derrick Henry was just exactly the same guy he's been for the last three years. Um, just in a in a lower yeah. um, he, in a lighter role, he which looked, was probably good for him. He looked that way from a burst standpoint, from ability to change direction, from an uh, from an ability to. I mean, he watching him get outside. To me, when you watch a player on the field when it comes to burst, I look at short, you know, perimeter runs to the far side and to the near side, and who they're beating, you know, and what angles those players have. And he did a really good job of being able to still win short, you know, short area burst past most linebackers. And he was able to beat some cornerbacks who had angles on him. And that's, you know, when a running back can do that, especially in the NFL, where the, the, uh, the spread of 40 times, if we're going to go back to 40 times here, is probably much narrower than it is for players at the combine in the college game you know or try or on pro days it's you know it's probably self-selected a bit to where it's a pretty pretty narrow spread 
you know, he's beating some fast players, some quick players, some players with acceleration at a position where it's select, you know, it's funneled for them to have quick short area speed and he's able to show that burst. So, yeah, I'm I'm not as um I'm not wary about him in that regard, but at the same time, the system to me too is a big part of it. Roll will be a big if he goes yeah. he winds up as like in a team that looks like Atlanta now like Atlanta's running game and he's a cog in that and just a specialist then yeah forget that but the Ravens absolutely yeah and and just like for full disclosure I, I say he's not down over the last three years 2021 2022 2023 he averaged about 0.1 yards over expectation all three years um and again don't take this is gospel I'm not saying he's like yeah. 0.1 yard better than an average running back there's a lot of problems with stats but um, that's the baseline for him, 0.1 over expectation over the last three years. 2018, 2019, 2020, that was more like 1.1 yards over expectation. So I don't think, based on the evidence, that like it's not peak offensive player of the year 2020 Derrick Henry out there anymore. That, that guy's probably gone. But slightly off Derrick Henry, I think can potentially still be a very productive player if there's a team out there that's going to to grab him and be like we're just going to hand you our carries you know we're going to do something else on passing downs maybe we'll spell you a little bit but we're going to let you run 250 to 300 times we're going to let you grind out like a bunch of the tough lots downs of red zone that we need right absolutely the stuff that tony pollard kind of inherited last year and struggled with the, like the dirty work that's not as glamorous but that that zeke elliott handled for the cowboys for many years um and i think they kind of missed last year uh and derrick henry in my mind can absolutely still be that guy it, it's interesting you mentioned the four free agent running backs and they all have very different cases and if i'm thinking like a gm i can easily make an argument for all four of them yep uh, for my team signing any of them because they're all they're all different players at their best and they all declined for different reasons and they all have different expectations of rebounding. Um, I tend to lean Jacobs because I feel like Jacobs the last three years is about as good of the thing at, at the things that Derrick Henry is good at as Derrick Henry was for the last three years. He's not 2020 Derrick Henry, yeah. but I think Josh Jacobs can easily be 2021 through 2023 Derrick Henry. And then he offers so much upside beyond that because he's, um, I think more comfortable as a receiver than Henry is. I think he, you know, he's younger. It's less likely that we're seeing true decline with him. Um, so of the four, I agree with you that Josh Jacobs would be my bet. Um, and then, yeah, Jacobs, Eckler. From a fantasy standpoint, Pollard would be my three, and then Henry would be my four. From like an NFL team building standpoint, I'd probably flip that. Yeah, well, I definitely would put Jacobs first. Um, and I think that Jacobs, too, if he lands in the right system, will get to show people that he's probably a better wide receiver, actually, than Pollard and and would be up there with Eckler. He was fantastic at Alabama, um, a good route runner. He just wasn't used in that capacity. And a lot of it's because if you got to play action game, um, which was a lot of what he was running in, he's the focal point. He's not going to be running the type of routes that are expanded beyond leaks and and screens and Henry's pretty good as a receiver, but yeah, as a route runner, you're not going to be putting him in an Eckler type of role or even a Pollard type of role as often. Um, but yeah, to me, it's like, look, there's if I'm a GM, 
there's column A, which is you know, which is probably Eckler and and uh, Pollard. Column B, if we're going to do A back and B back like the Lions, column B is then Jacobs and and uh, Henry. And if you really need a running back stable, you could choose one from column A and column B. Bankrupt yourself, have no offensive line, and then you know, and then you'd have Adam's son probably trolling you about you know the decisions that you made. Um, but you know, fortunately, we do have, you know, according to Adam's son, at least a, a guy who's point one better than the average. Um, you know, when it comes to doing this for us, and you know, congratulations to Adam once again um, for for earning the FSWA Fantasy Writer of the Year. Um, and definitely check out his work at Football Guys. Um, and you can find me at Matt Waldman RSP or MattWaldman.com. In addition to Football Guys. The rookie scouting portfolio will be available April 1st um, for $21.95. You can order it at mattwaldman.com directly, um, and you'll get you'll create a password and um, login if you're not an older, uh, a, a former subscriber. Um, and when I am ready to make it available, you'll get an email and you can download it from there. My projections and rankings for all Dynasty players that are they're likely in the pool. I do that multiple times a year in terms of updates. You can get that for $24.95 and you get you can download it in spreadsheet form or in PDF form. And the first one will be available in June. You'll get multiple updates throughout the year. And when you buy it, you'll you'll get emailed with new passwords and links each time that I have an update. Um, they really go well together. And for you know, for most people, they say that's still a deal together. If you, if I would suggest one, I think the best thing that I do is the RSP pre-draft, post-draft guide, and it probably has the most um, evergreen, the longest, you know, value for the next three to five years, especially for free agents. Um, but if you're just looking for answers and you don't really need the context or explanation, you can get the Dynasty rankings and projections um, for twenty four ninety five at com. So thanks again for uh, tuning in for another enjoyable episode hopefully and we'll see you probably next week or two and if not then it's because i got too busy and we'll start up again in april so we'll we'll find we'll take it one week at a time right now thanks again